Today, Pastor Jeff is preaching from Acts chapter 15, so if you want to make your way there in your Bible or on your device, for our scripture reading, I'll read the first five verses. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach to the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in a serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. Verse 4, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that your plan from the beginning was to draw a people unto yourself. And as we see that traced throughout the scriptures from Israel now to all the nations, we praise you for the work you have done and are doing Would you turn our hearts and our minds to you as we study your word? Would we see and understand what is happening here in the early church and its significance for us today? Father, glorify your son, Jesus Christ, as we sit under your word being proclaimed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. morning. Well, great to see all of your faces. Thanks for showing up on this uh, smoky day. So glad uh, to see you this morning. We are going to be continuing our series, The Relentless Gospel, in this uh, Acts chapter 15 passage. So if you are there, here's what you need to know about this passage, okay? Like no other passage we have read before, some of them are similar, but like no other passage we have read before or covered in this series, this passage is critical for the future of the church. And it is vital for the Christians to get it right right here, and it's vital, what we're going to see today, for Christians to continue to get this right in every church age. So what are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about a controversy that came up because of the conversion of many, many Gentiles coming into the Christian faith. Now, because there is this renewal, this great awakening that is happening among people who are pagans and idolaters and not part of the Jewish faith, and there are so many of these people coming to the faith, what is happening is now the Jerusalem church has to settle the matter. How Jewish do these people have to be to receive Jesus, right? So that's the controversy. The controversy is uh, sort of sparked by Pharisaic Christians, Now, typically we think of the Pharisees as being sort of these uh, mustache-twirling evil guys in in the Gospels who are constantly opposing Jesus. We need to understand, though, that the Gospel was first offered to them. Uh, As Jews, the Gospel was first offered to their order and the Sanhedrin and all of those Jewish leaders. And Luke has already told us that a great many priests and members of the Sanhedrin, of which the Pharisees were members, are coming into the faith. So now you've got all these leaders, Jewish leaders, who are coming into the Christian faith, and so they are bringing their baggage. All of us bring our baggage. And it just so happens that we are going to see what their baggage is in this passage. So Pharisaic Christians are insisting that Gentile Christians convert to Judaism in addition to converting to Jesus. 
And God's conversion of the Gentiles was so successful that they have to settle this matter. Does a Christian also have to be a Jew? Well, who are the debaters? Well, Luke is very careful to tell us who the leaders are and who the people who are driving this debate are. Uh, The first one that he mentions there is Peter. We start really in a passage where it's Barnabas and Paul. And so when they get all the way back to Antioch, Syria, there is this uh, sort of roiling discussion about this that is going on because of these Pharisaic Christians. And Paul and Barnabas have to settle the matter. And they argue so persuasively for the case that the Gentiles receive the spirit by faith that the church in Antioch decided to send them to Jerusalem. To send them to Jerusalem and also argue that case before the mother church in Jerusalem. We also see Peter. We see Peter. Why is it important for Peter to to be a part of this debate? Well, we'll see that he is a pivotal figure in the life of the church and his testimony is going to be very weighty to the Jews. We also see the elders and the apostles. So this is a a vigorous debate that is going on amongst the core leadership of the mother church in Jerusalem. What is the debate? Well, it's a works versus faith debate. It's a works versus faith debate. In this particular context, it's the works of Torah. What are the works of Torah? They're the marks of Torah. Circumcision, dietary laws, uh, compliance with Jewish dietary laws, and Sabbath observance and festival observance. Now, there are a host, a score, scores of laws that fall into one of those three categories in the Old Testament, and this is what it surrounds. Uh, Does a Gentile also have to bear the marks of Judaism? Do they have to identify as Jews? And so the church is arguing, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, many of the apostles, the apostles and many of the elders are arguing, no, they don't. Uh, In fact, they have it. They didn't convert to Judaism, and God has poured out the Holy Spirit upon them. So Peter's case, exhibit A. Peter stands up and he says this, verses seven and eight. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you are aware, you know the story well, don't you? That in the early days, God made a choice among you. That by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he has given it to us. So what is exhibit A in this court? What exhibit A is, You know the story, how God sent me to Cornelius' house. It's back in Acts chapter 10. Go read it. You know the story of how God sent me to Cornelius' home, and he poured the Holy Spirit out on them without them converting to Judaism. And from Cornelius all the way to Acts 15, through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, God has been doing this. In community after community, in city After city, God has been pouring out the spirit because the Gentiles believe the gospel. They believe the message. And the Gentiles were not viewed as inferior or needing any ethnic marks in the flesh before receiving the spirit by faith. And so he asked this question, a shocking question, a shocking admission. Why are you testing God by putting a yoke on their necks that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? What is this yoke? What is it? It's the law. What is the law? It's these markers. It's all of these things that surround these badges of membership as the people of God. These things that identify you as a member in the covenant people of God. He says, we have not been able to carry this yoke. Why would we now impose this upon 
Gentiles, why would we do that? Since God is already pouring his spirit out upon them by faith. Barnabas and Saul's case, God works pouring out the spirit. Here's what they say in verse 12. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Earlier it says they explained it in great detail. So they explained this in great detail, what the spirit was doing in the life of Gentiles. So serious argument and debate is happening here. Leaders do this constantly. Leaders are constantly arguing and debating in a very cordial way about what is the right way to proceed. And then James's case, here's what James says. Now James is functioning in the Jerusalem church as something of a, a senior pastor. He's an elder among elders. And this is kind of what he says here. He says after, uh, verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, James responded, brothers, listen to me. Simon has reported how God first intervened to take the Gentiles uh, as a people for his own name. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written. Now he's quoting Amos 9 and Isaiah 45. He says, after these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. That means David's kingdom. And I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name declares the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those who are uh, among the Gentiles who are trying to turn to God. Notice that. So what is James saying? James is saying we should not put any barrier between people and the cross that is not the cross. We should not put any barrier between people and Jesus that is not Jesus. Jesus is the offense. He's the rock that makes men stumble, not anything else. And that's our decision. And the brothers agree. So what is the decision? No conversion to Judaism is required. The spirit is given by faith alone. Abstaining from all idolatrous practices is good practice. Why? Because all of these things that they mention here in the letter. Okay? So do not eat red meat. How many of you eat red meat? You like your steak rare? Yeah, you're sinners. <laughs> right? I do too. But, what they're but he's not just talking about a rare steak. Uh, during a summer barbecue. This is not what he's talking about. He's talking about the meat that is sacrificed and offered to idols that is then taken out the back of the pagan temple and sold to people as they line up to buy it, to eat at home. He's saying that's participation in idolatry. Don't do that. Sexually, uh, sexual immorality. He's not just talking about any act of adultery, though it certainly is inappropriate for a Christian to have an adulterous relationship, of course, but here he's talking about the kind of sexual immorality that is tied to the pagan temple. He's saying men in Corinth, men in Antioch, men in Ephesus, don't do that. Don't go up to the temple and have sex with prostitutes before you go to church that night. This is what they're talking about. So what they're saying is, these are the rules. These are the community rules, okay? If you're going to be a Christian, then you're not going to be an idolater. So let me say this very clearly. It is our human nature, listen, it is our human nature to turn the Christian faith into Pharisaic religion. And this passage is directly nailing that. This passage is directly addressing that. The people who are responsible for this controversy are saved Pharisees. They're Pharisaic leaders. And they have brought this controversy into the church and, it, and if they win this argument, the gospel will stop right here. There will be no Christ community church in the future. There will be no other Gentile churches in the future. It won't happen. 
if they win this argument. Now, let me say this very clear. The greatest threat to Jesus' ministry when he was uh, incarnate and in Galilee and Judea was Phariseeism. It wasn't the Greeks. It wasn't the Romans. He would have never made it to the cross if he hadn't been tried by the Sanhedrin. And the Pharisees are directly responsible for that. They are the single greatest obstacle to Jesus preaching the gospel in the gospels. The greatest threat to the church in Acts are the Pharisees, are the Judaizers. All of the stories that we've looked at in the past few weeks where Paul has been planting churches in Gentile cities, they've readily received it and accepted it. And then who shows up to stir up the crowds and stone Paul to death? The Judaizers, the people who cannot let go of these works. Okay, and the greatest threat we face today in making disciples is not political. It's not a political system. It's not cultural. It's internal. Did you hear that? The greatest threat that we face today for the gospel going forth in our community, in our families, and in our world is internal. Because all of us have a recessive gene of Phariseeism. Our tendency as Christians and the tendency of the church throughout the history of the church is to morph the Christian faith into something that it was never intended to be. Never. I put this question out on Facebook a few weeks ago and, and I just asked the question, what are some artificial barriers that we put between people and God? And I got some very interesting answers. And so I went back and I was trying to categorize all the answers. I was trying to categorize all the answers and, and just put them in categories. And I, and I came to the conclusion that all of the answers can just be put in the category of Phariseeism. Just people being Pharisees, turning the Christian gospel into a Pharisaic religion. So in context, the church has to address the evils of Pharisaic religion. What are these marks or characteristics of hyper-religious people? What are they known for? Well, they're known, first of all, for heresy. Heresy. That sounds strong. Well, if you think that's strong, read Matthew 23. This heresy is just adding human tradition, okay, or, or so-called revelation to God's written word, to God's revealed word. In fact, it is the tendency to add a human tradition and to elevate that tradition to the same importance and weight that God's word has. And we as Christians, folks, we just have a tendency, all of us have a tendency to do this. Now, the Pharisees practice what is called the oral Torah, the oral Torah. Jesus calls it the tradition of your ancestors. This was an oral law that they had built around the law, and they believed as a sect that it went all the way back to Moses himself. They were wrong. And Jesus thought they were wrong. Jesus confronted them for it to say you've set aside the commands of Torah for the sake of your own tradition, your own oral Torah. You're actually breaking the law of God uh, under the guise or under the, uh, the, the illusion that you're actually keeping it, but you're not keeping it. So how do we do this today? Well, whenever we elevate the traditions of men to equal status with God's written word, that's heresy, that's heretical. Um, I wrote this in a paper not too long ago and I had a professor write this in the margin. He said, could it be, I, I said that, well, Paul was a blasphemer when he was a Pharisee. And uh, he wrote this in the margin. He said, uh, could it be, he just asked the question, that Paul was really sincere and genuine 
just a sincere and genuine Pharisee. And I wanted to say to my professor, I didn't say this because I wanted to pass the class, but I wanted to say to my professor, absolutely he was sincere and genuine. Paul says about his fellow Jews, his fellow Pharisees, he says they're zealous for, the not, for law without knowledge. He said of himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, when I opposed Christ as a Pharisee, I was a blasphemer. Paul thought that he was a blasphemer because he taught falsely about the Torah and he taught falsely about Jesus. So their first problem is heresy. The first problem is that they're, they're not teaching rightly about God. The second problem is self-righteousness. What is self-righteousness? Self-righteousness is a belief that strict moral compliance made them more acceptable to God. That a strict compliance with these man-made standards made them somehow more acceptable before God. Jesus gives a parable about this. In Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the sinner. And he says the Pharisee has the audacity to come close to the altar. The sinner stays far behind. The Pharisee bellows on at close range. He just bellows on, brings his religious resume, and just trots it out of all the things that he's accomplished for God. And the sinner cannot even look up. The Pharisee says, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like this man. I thank you that I'm not like, not like others who sin. And then he says all of the things that he has done to be acceptable before God. And what does the sinner do? What does the publican do? He tears his robes and he cries out for forgiveness and asks for God's mercy. And then Jesus asks this all-important question. Which one of those men do you think went home justified? God is holding court when you're at the altar. When you're at church, God is holding court. And who leaves justified? It is the man who confesses his sins, the man or woman who confesses their sins before God and confesses the full sufficiency of Christ's atoning work on the cross. That's who's justified before God. And so self-righteousness was one of their problems. Also hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Well, it is forbidding or requiring something for others that you do not forbid or require for yourself. It's forbidding or requiring something for someone else that you will not forbid or require for yourself. And this can take many different forms. And I thought about this this week as Bill Cosby was uh, released from jail. I, I thought about this. I thought about, okay, so this guy got off on a technicality. And what was he doing? What had he confessed to? Well, he confessed to drugging and raping women. Now, his fellow comedians would say, you would hear them say, Bill Cosby was ruthless personally. Like when you were personally with him, if he saw you in a comedy club or something, he would tear you a new one. He would rip you to shreds for using foul language on stage. Right? This is what they would say. Now, I'm not condoning that. I don't think that's a, a good idea. And I don't think those comedians should be doing that. But they would use this foul, vulgar language on stage. And Bill Cosby, Eddie Murphy said, Bill Cosby called me and tore me up on the phone, excoriated me up one side and down the other. And it turns out that while Cosby was doing that, he was drugging and raping women. That's hypocrisy. That's the grossest example that I could possibly give you. But the truth of, of the matter is, is that all of us in micro levels are guilty of some level of hypocrisy where we hold others to a standard that we don't hold ourselves to. And so we have to be on watch because this is what Phariseeism is. This is what it is. Pharisees have the problem of inaccessibility. You know, the higher up in any organization you go, in the decision path, 
the harder it is to hear the truth about yourself. And this is why good leaders have to invite coaching. This is why good leaders have to invite the perspective of others to say, man, how am I doing? How am I doing as a leader? And the Pharisees just did not do this. And also religiosity, which is prioritizing religious systems over people. So Jesus said this about them. He, he was having an argument with them, and he said, here's what the Sabbath was made for. The Sabbath was made for the man. The man wasn't made for the Sabbath. What is Jesus saying? You prioritize the system, I'm prioritizing the person. The system of religion that God gave you was designed, it was made for the man to worship at his best. It was made for his flourishing and healing someone on the Sabbath is not breaking the Sabbath command. He was trying to show them that they were prioritizing religious systems over the people those systems were supposed to be serving. They strained out a gnat and swallowed a camel. They were careful to tithe and practice religion, religion with scrupulous detail and then failing to show mercy and justice and grace to people who were made in God's image. That is a travesty. May, folks, may it never be. May it never be true of the church of Jesus Christ. May it never be. And then also judgmentalism. Well, judgmentalism is when we become the standard of all that is right in all matters that are debatable, or preferences, or calling, personal calling. So let me give you two that are going to make you really uncomfortable. Okay, you're welcome this morning. Welcome. <laughs> let me give you a couple. First of all, career moms versus stay-at-home moms. Now, because my wife has been both uh, at some point in her life, and right now she's a working mom. We have older kids, and so she's working out at the College Feaster in Idaho. I, I have literally spent my entire marriage hearing career moms say really nasty things and snide comments about stay-at-home moms. And I've heard it the other way too. Like if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're somehow superior, you have a superior calling to a marketplace mom. Now both are working moms, amen? I don't wanna get in trouble today. <laughs> too late, yes, okay. Now both are working moms, okay? One is working in the marketplace, one is working in the home. And they're both full-time jobs, for sure. Okay, but what happens is God has called some people and given them the opportunity to work in the marketplace and not be a stay-at-home mom. That's their calling, that's their preference, and you and I should not judge them. And God has called some to stay at home, and he's given them the opportunity to stay at home and raise the kids at home, at least for a season in their life, and we should not look down at them and judge them, okay? Amen. Okay. Well, you agree. You're really not going to like this next one, though. <laughs> Homeschooling families versus public and private and charter school families, right? <laughs> okay, if I had a nickel <laughs> for every time I heard a public school family look down their nose at homeschooled families, I would have a giant bag of nickels. And if I had a nickel for every time I heard this from a homeschool family, well, we really care about the education of our kids. That's why we homeschooled them. Okay, well, I guess the rest of us don't. Okay, listen, if you have the opportunity, if that's your preference and that's your calling, good for you. Knock yourself out. But we should not be judging each other by our personal standard. This matter is debatable. It is a matter of wisdom, it's a matter of preference, and it's a matter of personal calling, and we should not be judging each other based on our personal standards. So, but the Pharisees were known for this. They were judgmental. They were judgmental. And there's a little Pharisee in all of us in this regard, and so we just have to be vigilant. 
And lastly, ostentation. I just couldn't find a better word. Ostentation. It just, their world was a life of public religious pageantry. And this was regarding the way they dressed. Now, for you and I in our culture, especially as, as 21st century Christians, we don't care so much about how people are dressed. At least in our wing of the church, we don't. Uh, in the first century, they very much did. The way you dressed signaled to your community your religious status within the community. Now, when Jesus talks about the Pharisees, one of the only examples we have in the ancient world of someone describing what a Pharisee looked like is Jesus. And the way that he described them, he said this, they like to make their phylacteries long. And they like to have their tassels uh, make them really long so people can see them and even trip over them in public, right? What is he talking about? When Deuteronomy 6, it says, tie this word on your arm. Tie it to your forehead so you don't forget it. That's just Jewish hyperbole, but they took that literally. So they had these leather straps, and at the end of those leather straps was a box. It's called an ark or a ritual box, and in that ritual box was a copy of the Torah and they would tie it on their heads. There would be a little box right there on their foreheads. They took that literally. And their robes had these really ornamented tassels, these blue tassels, and they made them really long. That was in compliance to Numbers 15. Like Numbers 15, Moses told them to do that. And Jesus says, they love to come in their richly ornamented robes with these long phylacteries to show everyone their piety, to demonstrate to everyone they're super religious. But the truth is, they're inwardly full of sin. Full of sin. And when Paul was doing this, denying the gospel, Paul said this. Uh, Paul said that he was zealous. He was zealous for the traditions of his fathers, but he was in the wrong. So what is the result of allowing Pharisaic gene to take over the church? It's the loss of forward momentum in the gospel. So let me give you some application today based on Matthew 23. First of all, this approach to religion doesn't actually make disciples of Jesus. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, 13. He said, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you play actors. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would go in to enter. Jesus is saying, you're not going in. You're not going to heaven. You're not going into the kingdom. You're not going to inherit the kingdom when it comes. Okay? And then you slam the door. In other people's faces, you don't let them in either. Here's how. Because you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a single convert, and when you do, when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a son of hell as he was before. Twice as much of a son of hell. He says he would have been better off to stay a pagan. He would have been better off to stay an idolater than to become a Pharisee. So this approach to Christian faith does not actually produce disciples of Jesus. It produces disciples of hell. Number two, this approach to religion doesn't prioritize mercy ministry to people. This was what Jesus was all about. When Jesus was out there showing people the grace and the love and the mercy and the justice of God on the hillsides, this is what he was about. And this approach stops that cause. It stops that ministry. He says in verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says you ought to have done one without neglecting the other, so don't neglect them. 
you blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a whole camel. What was a gnat? A gnat was the smallest unkosher food you could eat, and they would strain it out of their bowls. And then a camel was the largest unkosher animal in the ancient world. And he says, you're choking down a camel and straining out a gnat. So if the Pharisee party had been allowed to win this debate in Acts chapter 15, nobody would be sitting here today. Nobody would, because its instinct and its impulse is to stop the forward momentum of the gospel of Jesus and to become insular and ingrown. Number three, this approach doesn't result in spiritual purity. It can't. All it results in is, is an outward show of purity. It results in this outward veneer of people putting on their best and being kind of fake and kind of phony, but not real. Not really confessing their sins to one another so that they may be healed. So it doesn't actually result in spiritual purity. Here's what Jesus said in 23, 25. He says, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. So Jesus is saying on the outside you look pure, but on the inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. And this is what the gospel is all about. The gospel is all about addressing that heart issue. What really makes you unclean before God? What really makes us unclean before God is sin. And the Bible addresses that first. Number four, this approach leaves a person spiritually dead they have the appearance of being spiritually alive, but in reality, they are spiritually dead. Jesus says in verse 27, Woe to you, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. But within are full of dead people's bones and all kinds of uncleanliness. You, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus says on the outside, you look very Alive, spiritually alive to God, but on the inside, you're full of death. You're still dead in your trespasses. You're still dead in your sins. So this approach doesn't actually address our problem. It doesn't do that. And fifthly, this approach was the wrong religious heritage. It was the wrong religious heritage. Theirs was a heritage, not of compliance to Torah, but of breaking it. Breaking it under the guise of fulfilling it by creating more laws around it. He says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, well, if we had lived back then, we would not have killed uh, the prophets. And Jesus says, okay, there you go. You just testified against yourself that you are the sons of the men who killed the prophets. <laughs> and you're saying you wouldn't do it today. So how are you gonna respond to me? Jesus says, fill up the measure then. F finish it. Finish the job. Kill the last prophet. Jesus is the prophet to end all prophets. Jesus is the apotheosis of the prophetic office. He fulfills that office. And Jesus says, you're going to do the same thing to me that your ancestor did, did to them. Think about that. Conclusion. Did you know that your body is full of cancer cells? Such a warm thought to end the sermon with. But you are. Your body's full of cancer cells. And there are factors, both genetic and external, environmental, that can flip on what are called epigenetic switches. And it can just flip that cancer cell on. And once it does, left unchecked and untreated, it'll take over your body. And it'll kill you. It'll kill you by becoming ingrown. 
by growing somewhere too much. And this is what is the choice here in Acts chapter 15. What the choice in Acts chapter 15 is between, frankly, a form of religion that will be a cancer in the life of the church, and God knows it, Paul knows it, Barnabas knows it, Peter knows it. And so do the apostles and many of the elders there at this council. And they know that if, if this wing of the church wins the argument and everybody has to conform to works in addition to faith, the gospel isn't going forward anymore. The gospel is going to stop. It's going to stop in its tracks. And there is no way God is going to allow this movement, this heresy, to stop the Christian faith. People believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving the free gift of salvation by faith and the Holy Spirit by faith. No way. Its instinct is always to stop the message of the gospel. Will you pray with me? The message today is we all have the same problem. Doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Doesn't matter whether you think you're a religious person or not particularly religious. Doesn't matter, matter whether you think you're a particularly moral or ethical person or you think you're a real scoundrel. It really doesn't matter because all of us have the same problem. And this text tells us that. This text tells us whether you're a Jew or not a Jew, religious or irreligious, we all have a sin problem. It also tells us that we all have the same solution. No matter what your background or your state right now, we all have the same solution, and that is the forgiving power of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you received the Spirit? Because if you have, you've received him by faith, and if you haven't, you receive him by faith. Will you have faith this morning? Will you have a trusting heart toward the Lord? Father, we just want to express our hearts to you, our trust in you, we thank you for saving us as people who were far from God, people who were far from Israel, far from the covenants and the promises that you gave to your original people, God, but you saved us by your grace and in your mercy anyway. And we thank you for that. And if you're here this morning and you haven't been saved, you haven't trusted, will you do it right now? Trust in Christ alone, by faith alone, and you'll receive his grace and the love of the Holy Spirit will be poured in your heart. Will you trust right now before you walk out of here? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us? Let's seal our time with a song.